0: Thanks, Mim. Uh, hopefully, you would have received an outline which might be helpful to you. I'm going to try and make sense of some of those verses that were read. The uh, Luke reading, the, second, the third reading, sorry, uh, is a reading that uh, we've been doing in the anticipation of Easter, looking at chapters 22 and 23 of the Gospel of Luke as we prepare for Easter together. It's your life. Write your own story. You don't want to let someone else write your story for you. Here's a quote. In the screenplay of our lives, we decide what all these props will mean. You are the hero who gets to decide which triumphs you will aspire and you will work towards yourself and your family a quote from a motivational um, uh, book that uh, you can find pretty easily. And what it's saying is that you need to write the own story of your life. You find your own meaning. Whatever happens in life, the things that come towards you, you are the hero who can triumph over those things. We define our own meaning. This is the way our world thinks. And we define our own meaning and, if you like, we're writing the story of our lives. And we come up with these goals. And we determine those goals and we try and achieve those goals. And that's how, in our world, most people find meaning. We have a goal. Perhaps it's to climb the, seventh, the seven highest mountain peaks of the world. That's a, that's a pretty ambitious goal, isn't it? And and it's a goal that you could imagine that there's a fair bit of meaning. I mean, if you could climb, if you could say that you've climbed the seven highest mountain peaks in the world, that would give you a sense of completion, a sense that you can endure, a sense that you've set out to do something and you can do it. We set goals all the time to give us meaning. We set them in the way that we want to be this kind of person. We want to be a smart thing, successful and beautiful person. Because if we're all those things, then we'll have meaning. Or we want to retire comfortably and then we'll have meaning. Or even something good like helping the poor. If we can help the poor and we can be a person who helps the poor, then we can have meaning. See, this is us writing the story of our lives because what is a story a story is a character who is a hero a protagonist the center of the story one who is against these forces or these people antagonists and he or she overcome them will they get through that's a drama of a story and so we've set these goals and we're living towards these goals these goals that give us meaning, will we get there? There's a problem with this way of thinking. And the problem is it doesn't stand the most important test of life. It doesn't stand the test of suffering. A man called Viktor Frankl wrote a book in 1946 called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's a fascinating book about his experience as a prisoner in Nazi concentration camps during World War II. And in those camps, as he himself was a prisoner, he noticed two types of people, those who had meaning in their life based on this world, things like your job, your family, your looks. Those people, when they entered a death camp, the the sheer horror and reality of a death camp stripped their meaning away. It stripped them of everything. For those people, meaning in life, their meaning in life was so thin that suffering took it away. And he noticed that within this group of people, um, they either did one of two things. Either they became increasingly evil and became collaborators with the Nazi guards, or they literally curled up into a ball and died. There's a group of people with a thin meaning. He also said that there was another group of people in the prison camps, a group of people if you like who had a thick meaning in life, who found a meaning in life that transcended what they had achieved, who a meaning that tr- transcended the goals of their life. And he found that these people, these were the people who were able to survive. Indeed, these were the people who were able to act in courageous ways. So, I want to ask you a question this afternoon. What gives you meaning in life? There might be plenty of things that you have in your life that you gain meaning from, but I want to ask you do you have a resilient meaning? Do you have a meaning in your life that is strong and stable that can survive the harsh realities of what it is to live in our world? You see, those in the Nazi death camps who had a meaning beyond themselves knew that their meaning was not found in their goals and their achievement of their goals. They realised that they weren't writing the story of their own lives. They, they realised that they weren't the author. They realised that, in fact, they were in a story that was far bigger than just their lives. The Bible says, and you won't be surprised by this, that God is the author of our lives. But what I want to show us this afternoon, as much as that is true, and it is indeed true, there is something far more wonderful even than that. Because the Bible says that there is a script that we are following. There's a script that we follow, but it hasn't been written simply by ourselves. Why don't you turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and Paul, as he's speaking about what it is to be a human, he speaks about, if you like, this script. This script that we're all reading, this script that we're all following, this story Of our lives. He says there in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came or spread to all men because all sinned. See what Paul is saying? He's saying that death has entered our world. Death has entered our world by one man. And a couple of verses later, verse 14, he says that one man is Adam. And here is what we see. What we see is the way Adam acted in disobedience is indeed the reason why we act in disobedience. See, what Adam did in the garden, he failed to listen to God. And so this script was written for humanity. It's a script of disobedience rather than obedience. And the reality of Adam's sin has now affected, Paul is saying, our lives. Adam's script has become our script. We follow and we do exactly what Adam has done, Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, the Bible says that that our fallenness, the nature of our condition before God, our sin, is so deeply embedded within us, it's so deeply penetrated our humanity that that it's now like part of our moral and spiritual DNA. We've descended from our forefathers. And the reality of sin in our life has been passed on to us, first from Adam and the script of disobedience. Now, if you like, within, so within us, contained within our DNA, if you like, embedded in our very selves. I don't know if any of you do Pilates. Put your hand up if you do Pilates. A couple of us, yes, a couple of men there, that's fantastic. Now, I, I've never done Pilates, and you won't you know, be surprised to you that I'm no expert in Pilates, but I understand within Pilates there's this concept of core strength, is that right? Getting some nods, okay, right? Core strength, and that the practice of Pilates assumes that within us is this strength, and through these particular exercises, we can strengthen, see I'm... Standing upright, We can strengthen our core strength. We can build it because it's deep within us. Now, this is sometimes the way I think we think of ourselves. Deep down within me is this pure spiritual core. But what's happened is it's been weighed down by life. This core, this pure spiritual core has been affected by the other people, the way they've treated me and what's happened to me. And so what I've got to do to be a more spiritual whole person is I've got to fan into flame the reality of my spiritual self, my deepest spiritual self. a bit like a flower, you know, that hasn't seen the sunlight. If we could just take the flower out and let those beautiful rays of sun come upon it, then it would flower and bloom. But that's not how the Bible thinks about us in our very core deep down within all of us, the Bible says, is not a beautiful flower, but a decaying, rotten core. And so that's why becoming a Christian is not simply a matter of making a choice, a better choice. And that's why life is not simply a matter of making good choices. Now, the Bible says that within all humanity, We are bound. We are held. What we want to do, our wills, are captive and abound. We're not free, in fact, the Bible says, to make good choices. Just down the road there at Mortlake Public School, where uh, a number of my children go, they have this concept of reward for good behaviour called champion choice. And no doubt you've heard this kind of language. You want to make a good choice in life. You kids need to make good choices. But I don't know if you can cast your mind back to being a kid. I cast my mind back to being a kid. I didn't make good choices. A lot of the time I was a pretty naughty naughty kid. I'll tell you why. It's not because I didn't want to make... uh, Sorry, it's not because I didn't know what the good choice was and what the bad choice was. It was because I didn't want to do what was good. My will was bound. See, the right thing to do is so often the thing we don't want to do. So it's not simply a matter of choice. This is what Christian theologians have realised for 2,000 years. In particular, there was a Christian theologian, Martin Luther who wrote an essay called The Bondage of the Will, saying that human people aren't as free as they think they are to make good choices. And guess what? Only a couple of years ago in the scientific journal Nature, they've conducted uh, these experiments that look at our choices and they discovered in this journal article that humans aren't as free as they think they are. We won't believe it when the theologian tells us 500 years ago, but we, we might consider it. If we read it in a scientific journal, this is what they say. He says, we feel that we choose, says neuroscientist John Dylan Haynes. But we don't. The point is, we're not as free as we think we are. You go out to a restaurant, uh, often you get a choice. uh, Steak or fish. Now, at that point, I think... I'm free to choose either steak or fish. And I always think about it, always annoys Mandy because it takes me ages to think about it, but she knows exactly what I'm going to choose because I always choose the steak. I think I'm free to be able to make a decision between the two, but I'm not. I choose the steak because that's what my dad chose every single time. Paul's point here in Romans chapter five, Luther's point in the bondage of the wheel is that we are not as free as we think we are. When the singer-songwriter Amy Winehouse died, people said that, you know, it's it's so sad. She she died of uh, overdose, of abusive substances, and really struggled with abusive substances her, her whole adult life. And people said, you know, Amy, she just made all these bad choices that led to her life being like this. Oh, Amy, only, if only... You'd made better choices in life. People saying this, I don't know if you can hear, distancing themselves from Amy's life and all her bad choices and their life and all their good choices, like they would have done better. See, as hard as it sounds, when the Bible says that we're all in ourselves gripped by the reality of sin. As hard as that sounds, it's not as patronising as saying to someone like Amy Winehouse, oh, you should have just made better choices. Because the Bible realises that Amy Winehouse was in the grip of a demonic power that held her life captive. And the Bible also says that that same demonic power that held her life captive is also the power that holds our life captive. The difference is we are so deluded to think otherwise. See, because of Adam's sin, because of the script that he wrote, the script that we now read, we are controlled by power beyond us. And we don't go off script because of Adam. We're set to a default. I don't know how old you are, but I don't think you have to be very old, perhaps just in your teens, to want to live your life again with what you know, as you look back at your younger self, you look back at the mistakes that you've made, you think about all the time that you've wasted, you think about those broken relationships, the hurt and harm that you've done to others and that they've done to you, And what would you give just to change those moments, those moments of deep regret that often come flooding back to us? Well, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is speaking of in the book of Romans in chapter 5. He's saying that that has in fact happened, that someone has entered our life to rewrite the script of our life. Someone has entered our life to free us from the bondage of control. Have a look there in Romans chapter 5, verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. See, Paul is speaking now of not a transfer in Bible language of curse from Adam to us in the script that he has written, but another transfer, a better transfer. This is a gift. This is a gift that we don't deserve there in verse 15, and it's so much better than the script that Adam has written and even the devastating impacts of that script because it came by just one man. It's another man. And in Paul's mind, it's another Adam. Paul is saying here that Jesus is a new Adam, and he's the one who doesn't bring a curse, but a gift. He doesn't bring the effect of disobedience, as Adam did, but he brings the effect of obedience. See, what the Bible is saying is that Jesus... As he came to earth, he came and entered into humanity. He came and entered into Adam's place. Jesus, Paul is saying, has replaced Adam. And if he has replaced Adam, guess what? He's replaced Adam's script. Adam's script is, in Adam, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in Adam all die. But Jesus' script is, in Christ, all are made alive. And Adam's story is not simply recovered, but what we see in the Gospel of Lord Jesus is that Adam's story is utterly reversed. Because Jesus is the new author of a new script, and the new script is his life. And that's where, and we see this so beautifully in Jesus' baptism. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 3, because this is what Jesus' baptism represents Jesus' baptism represents him coming into our world and assuming the place of Adam, assuming the place of humanity. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized? Have you ever wondered that? It's odd, isn't it? If, you, if, if it's surprising to you that Jesus was baptised, that's okay, you're in good company. Because if you have a look there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, it's pretty surprising to John the Baptist as well. Jesus says to John the Baptist, John, I want to be baptised by you. John says to Jesus, you've got to be joking. And Jesus says to John, no, just do it. And why? It's not because Jesus was sinful, We know that from other sections of the Bible. It's not as though he needed to be cleansed. Why was Jesus baptised? Well, Jesus was baptised because he's starting to live our story. He's entered into our lives. He hasn't come just to peer upon humanity as a human. He's come to involve himself in the very nitty-gritty of our lives, His baptism is a demonstration of what his life is about. His life is a life that is lived on our behalf, in solidarity with us. But so much more than that. Because his life is lived not just on our behalf, but also in our place. His life is lived instead of us. His life is becomes our life and that's what happens at his baptism there as he's baptized the spirit descends on him like a dove the voice of his father announces his pleasure and his love and then the oddest thing happens next have a look what happens next after Jesus' baptism there you might think this is strange here is his moment of great glory for Jesus and then in the very next verse Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, is led by that spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Do you see what, what's going on here? Jesus has entered humanity, not to peer upon it. Jesus has entered our world to go head to head, to do battle with the forces that are opposed to us, to do battle with the very forces that hold us captive. Jesus steps between the evil one and its prey. And something remarkable happens there in those verses, in verses 11, verse 1 to 11. Just cast your eye there in verses 1 to 11 of Matthew chapter 4. Here he's doing battle with the evil one. Here the evil one is tempting him time after time after time. And for the very first time, we see the power of God in our world. How? It's not in a miracle, it's not in a healing. How do we see the power of God? We see the power of God in Jesus' obedience. Adam disobeyed, and sin has come into our world, and we relive that script every time we sin. But when Jesus comes into our world, he enters into the very worst of humanity. He is tempted in the very most significant of ways. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's been promised bread. And here, in these desert places, we see the miracle of Christ's obedience. And in it, we, do, we see that Jesus doesn't only perform our part, but doesn't only perform his part, but the Bible picks up on this idea and he says, this is now Jesus, not just as Christ's son, but as our brother living an obedient life for us. See what God has done? God has come into our world. He's so invaded it. He's invaded, if you like. This is, I think, helpful language, such as what is necessary to break through the hardness of our hearts. God has invaded our lives in the Lord Jesus, and he has restored our human nature. And God is not here in Christ, the God who is over and against us from the outside, But what God is doing in Jesus is restoring human nature from the inside. He is an obedient human, the first obedient human. Christ does not exert his divine power from the outside, but he remakes us from the inside. In the person of Jesus, a new humanity is created. And so what Jesus has done, he's done, if you trust in him for you, He's acted in your place with all the range of human emotion and life and activity. In fact, the Bible says that he's even believed for you. If we are faithless, he is faithful. The Bible says that he has responded rightly to God for you. And all of Jesus' life, all of his acts are acceptable to his father. Remember his baptism? This is my son who, I'm, who I love. With him I am well pleased. So that if you are in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, you are already acceptable to the Father. And so if you're a Christian, it's not because of your faith. It's not because you made such a strong commitment to trust. It's because of what Christ has done for you in your place, on your behalf, standing before you, before the Father. And so Christ, here in this desert, confronts evil and obeys. And reminds us that we have been taken over by the very power of God. An invasion of righteousness has taken place. And as harsh as it might have sounded that we are rotten to our core, when we trust in Jesus, the beauty of his life, the beauty of his obedience is the new script for our lives. This is what's controlling us. It's not Adam and his script of sin, but it's Christ and his script of obedience. The book of Romans speaks about the righteousness of God. And there is a sense in which the righteousness the righteousness of God is an aspect of God's character that we share. But it's not just that. The righteousness of God that is declared to us by the death of the Lord Jesus is the power now of the righteousness of God within us. That power over that sad and sorry script of our lives, that sad and sorry history of all of humanity. And what, Jesus, what occurs in Jesus' death And in his resurrection is a new script for our lives, but it's not just our lives. And the Bible says it's a reality for the whole entire creation, for the whole entire cosmos. I don't know if you saw four weeks ago, there was a scandal, celebrity college scandal. Celebrities were paying money to get their kids into Princeton and Harvard, institutions that are held in very high esteem, very difficult to get into. And it came uh, out in the papers and in the media that what these celebrities had done had paid a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, to get their kids in. And how they did it was they didn't just give money to donate it to uh, some foundation and then their application was looked favourably. What they did is they got someone else to sit the exam for their children. And this smart kid... uh, You know, this A-grade student passed the exam with flying colours. See, friends, that's what's happened for us. See, life is an exam that we can't pass. But when we trust in Jesus, it's his obedience that starts to work in our lives. And that's why baptism is such a beautiful sign of this. Because in baptism, it says God is the active agent. God is the one who's making the good choice. Not you. God is. God's come into your disobedience. He's come into the reality of your sinfulness. He's invaded the reality of your life and he's brought you into the body of Christ. And so our relationship with God depends upon our very death and resurrection. If you turn over in Romans chapter 6, just quickly, I want to show you this. This is important because... Often you hear the phrase that something will happen, but it's only over my dead body. Well, that's exactly what's happened when someone is baptised. It is over their dead body that they are baptised. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says that our old self, the self that follows the script of Adam, was what? Was crucified. Our old self, we know in baptism is killed. In fact, in baptism we say our old self has been drowned. And so Christ has taken over our lives. He's taken over Adam in our lives. If you flick over there to verse 4 in Romans chapter 6, Paul uses the language of baptism. He says that through baptism in Into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see, the old self, the part of us that follows the script of Adam, when we trust in Jesus, that part of ourselves is crucified. We symbolize it with water because that part of ourselves is drowned. And they're replacing the drowning of our old self. Is our new selves. The drowning, the crucifixion of our old self is replaced with the resurrection of our new selves. A power now not to disobey in our lives is at work, but now, remarkably, a power to obey. In Romans chapter 8, it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life Give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. See, when we trust in Jesus, it is a profound transfer. When we trust in Jesus, it's not simply a good choice that we've made. A good choice to become a slightly better spiritual person. When we trust in Jesus, the Bible says that we have been transferred to a whole new world. There is a new reality that is at work within us. There is a new script now where obedience is actually possible. I don't know about you if you sometimes are weighed down by the reality of disobedience in your life. But let me, let me encourage you that Christian obedience is not an effort to try and fill the gap between who we are now and who we think we should become. But Christian obedience is a witness. It's a signpost that that goal has already been achieved. Why? Because Christ died, and he was raised. Did you hear what Chantilly said? Beautiful words. She said that she wants to be baptised because what happens to Jesus happens to her. When you trust in Jesus, your old self is crucified. And a new self rises out from the dead, is resurrected with Jesus. And so the spirit of God is at work in our lives. And friends, this is wonderful news. This is wonderful news because we're not writing the script of our own lives. We don't have to come up with our own meaning. We don't have to achieve our goals in order to feel good about ourselves. We're not the hero of the story. And we're not writing our own story. And God is not a literary critic who at the end of the book of our life will evaluate and hopefully give us five stars. Though no, God has come to us and he's rewritten the reality of who we are from the inside out. Dorothy Sayers was a mystery writer. I'll close here. And she was the first woman ever to graduate from Oxford. Intelligent woman, great writer. And she wrote uh, these novels with a key character within them, Lord Peter Wimsley, and he was this aristocratic sleuth who would go and solve mysteries. Uh, He was single, but he was a charismatic, good-looking man who could dance like Fred Astaire. And at one point, it's really interesting in her series of novels, suddenly there's this unusual woman who shows up in the story that Dorothy Sayers is writing. And guess what she does? This character writes mystery novels. And this character, Harriet Vane is her name, she was also the first woman in the story ever to graduate from a- Oxford. And guess what happened? Harriet Vane marries Peter Wimsley. You see, people look back at Dorothy's life and they know that she was lonely. And so, what she did is she wrote herself into her own story. And that's exactly what's happened for us if we trust in the Lord Jesus. He's come into our lives, He's written Himself into our lives, and He is writing the story of our life. And what it is to be a Christian is to know that you can't write your own life, but He can and to trust in his death and in his resurrection. Let's pray that we might be able to do that and live, live lives of obedience by his spirit. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that we would see the wonder of what it is for you to come to us, to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that you did not deserve. We pray, Father, that we would see the wonder of your spirit at work in our lives, We would know the reality of our old self being crucified and we would see the wonderful possibility of the new life you give us by your spirit in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and we pray it in his name. Amen. Please stand as we sing.